we got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Tonight on The Readout. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. 63 years after President Eisenhower's farewell speech, those words are coming back to haunt us, with fears growing of a regional war in the Middle East. Also tonight, E. Jean Carroll speaks out for the first time since the $83 million verdict against Donald Trump. Trump doesn't even pay his lawyers. So how likely is it that Ms. Carroll will ever see that money? Plus, infrastructure and chips and science are among President Biden's biggest accomplishments. Now, Republicans are shamelessly trying to take credit for policies they voted against. But we begin tonight with the growing threat of a regional war in the Middle East. Over the weekend, three U.S. service members were killed and more than 40 injured in an attack on a military base in northeast Jordan near the Syrian border. Late today, the Defense Department released the identities of the three U.S. Army Reserve soldiers who were killed. They are Sergeant William Jerome Rivers, Specialist Brianna Alexandria Moffitt, and Specialist Kennedy Ladon Sanders, all from Georgia. They are the first U.S. deaths in months of strikes by Iranian-backed militant groups since the Israel-Hamas war started in October. U.S. Central Command says the attack happened at a remote base on the border with Syria and Iraq called Tower 22. The White House is blaming an Iran-backed militia, with President Biden vowing that the U.S. will respond. Donald Trump, of course, pounced on the attack, portraying it as a consequence of Joe Biden's weakness and surrender. And the hawks in his party are pressing Biden to target Iran directly over the soldiers' deaths. Senator Tom Cotton, who, let's not forget, once advocated for the deployment of the military against Black Lives Matter protesters, released a statement about the Jordan attack, saying the only answer to these attacks must be devastating military retaliation against Iran's terrorist forces, both in Iran and across the Middle East. While Mitch McConnell said, quote, our enemies remain emboldened until, quote, the United States imposes serious crippling costs. Lindsey Graham was more candid, tweeting, hit Iran now, hit them hard. Some of the other usual suspects also weighed in. If there were ever a moment now when to show American determination and take uh, a significant step to reestablish deterrence, the president's response has to be to strike targets in Iran. We have to impose enough pain on Iran that it outweighs what they've done to us. First strike that hit, you punch and you punch back hard. What they should be doing is going after every ounce of production of those missiles. Wherever those missiles are, you take that out. The right's desire to bomb Iran is not new. 
But there's also a history, in fact, a bipartisan history of American presidents sometimes choosing caution when it comes to engaging militarily in the region. That's not always the case, of course. Hello, George Bush and George W. Bush. But there are some significant historical reminders. Take President Ronald Reagan, who in 1982 sent U.S. Marines on a peacekeeping mission to Lebanon, a country rocked by civil war. The following year, a truck filled with explosives drove into the U.S. military compound near Beirut Airport and detonated, killing 241 service members, including 220 Marines. It was a military and political disaster for the new president just two years into his first term. And yet, months later, Reagan announced that the Marines would withdraw offshore, a decision critics at the time said was a failure to stand firm against terrorism. More recently, in 2013, when the U.S. was roiled by the debate over how to respond to the Syrian government's use of chemical weapons in that country's civil war, an act that President Barack Obama had declared a red line beforehand, Obama nevertheless resisted. To the end, a military intervention in Syria. Ben Rhodes, deputy national security advisor for President Obama, wrote about the red line crisis inside the White House. In describing a pivotal moment in the Oval Office, Rhodes wrote, quote, In the decades since 9-11, we'd gone to war in Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, Somalia, and Libya. Now there was a demand that we go into Syria. Next, it would be Iran. It is too easy for a president to go to war, President Obama said. That quote from me in 2007, I agree with that guy. That's who I am. And sometimes the least obvious thing to do is the right thing. Joining me now is Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor for President Barack Obama and co-host of the Pod Save the World podcast, and Nayara Hawk, a former State Department Senior Advisor and former White House Senior Director. Thank you both for being here. Ben, I will start with you. This drumbeat, once again, from some of the usual suspects, thinking Lindsey Graham, uh, in the wake of this ho- horrible, um, uh, the horrible deaths of these three Army, U.S. Army members. Your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, there hasn't been a problem that Lindsey Graham hadn't identified the solution as bombing Iran uh, for a very long time in the Middle East. Um, I think if we step back from this, uh, there's some things we have to bear in mind. What has put our troops at risk is the escalation in the Middle East. Um, It's the escalation in the last three months, uh, obviously centered in the war in Gaza since October 7th, but also the violence we've seen across the region. And the deeper the United States gets itself into this kind of game of quicksand and tit for tat with these different proxies across the region, the more dangerous it's going to be for U.S. service members. Um, So if you're not going to de-escalate, what you're going to be doing is bringing more risk to the U.S. troops that are in that region and more risk that we're going to get even deeper into a regional war. And that leads to the Iran point. Uh, this isn't, I mean, it's not a video game. I mean, the way these people talk about these things, it's as if, you know, we're going to sit here in Washington and we're going to talk tough and then we're going to hit some stuff in the Middle East and there are not going to be any consequences. Uh, a war with Iran is a big piece of business. I don't think the American people are signed up for that. Uh, it could have huge consequences for inflaming an already inflamed region. It could lead to huge consequences for our service members who are the ones uh, who are put at risk in the region. It could have huge consequences for the global economy uh, in terms of disruptions. If you think the disruptions in the Red Sea are difficult for supply lines, uh, wait until there's a full-scale war between the United States and Iran that engulfs the entire region. They're not even thinking this through at all. 
Uh, and I think right now you have to take a step back and realize that it's the pathway of escalation that has continually gotten us into trouble. Um, whether it was going into the war in Iraq without any kind of plan, uh, whether it was Donald Trump pulling out of an Iran nuclear deal that was working and escalating tensions with Iran, or whether it's kind of falling into this trap now where you have groups that are trying to pick a fight with the United States. I think when someone's trying to pick a fight with you, why would you give them exactly what they want? There are ways in which we can try to protect our service members and our presence in that region uh, without succumbing to this uh, you know, quicksand that is pulling us back into a war that I don't think the American people want either. Um, and so there has to be a place for diplomacy. There has to be a place to reject this kind of nonsense advice that we've been hearing for 20 years now. Joy, and it doesn't work. And let me just play just for to, to give you all sort of a flavor of this, of how this has sounded, because you're absolutely right, Ben. This drumbeat for war, specifically with Iran, which let's just be clear, ain't Iraq. And we couldn't get through that without, you know, we didn't really have a clear victory there and also managed to create ISIS in the process. Here is how people like Dick Cheney, the late John McCain and Tom Cotton have been over the years talking about Iran. My belief always was that we needed to keep the military option on the table. An old Beach Boy song, Bomb Iran, you know, <laughs> bomb, 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 bomb. <laughs> anyway. Uh, it would be something more along the lines of what President Clinton did in December 1998 during Operation Desert Fox. Several days of air and naval bombing against Iraq's weapons of mass destruction facilities. We likewise must work to collapse the Iranian regime that oppresses its people, and seeks to sow terror all over the world. Sink their navy, destroy their air force, and deliver a decisive blow to the Revolutionary Guard. In other words, neuter that regime. Easy for them to say, Nayara, they wouldn't have to do it themselves. Oh, well, let's just look at the fact that the faces that you showed of the service members who were killed in action, they're all black, and not a single person advocating in that video is a black person. And in fact, probably none of them would actually have been drafted or have to voluntarily serve in the military because of the military benefits of education and basic standard of living that you can get if you are the 40% of the military that is made up of people of color or the other rank and file members who are made up of people from lower socioeconomic classes. Our all-volunteer military is amazing, but it also puts the burden of who has to serve out the chicken hawk policy recommendations. It's not the people who get to sit in those rooms and debate about whether or not the United States can go at it with Iran. There are so many other tools in the national security toolkit, and the Republican Party is out of not only the what is recommended by those who serve and, and the generals who command them, but they're also out of step with what their own, uh, their rank and file members would want. Nobody in the American public right now wants to see the United States involved in another 20-year forever war. You know, the challenge, Ben, of course, is that the disruption of shipping in the Red Sea is an economic problem, ultimately, and it's one that could impact President Biden's reelection and obviously the economy. So there's a lot of incentive to somehow make that stop. But these Iran-backed groups are still hitting the United States, hitting the you know, United States targets, um, positions, I should say, and hitting Red Sea shipping because of what's happening in Gaza. There is apparently another attempt to get a ceasefire deal, a temporary ceasefire deal that would involve returning all the hostages. Hamas is resisting that because they want a permanent ceasefire. What do you make of all of that happening at the same time you have these 
you know, living room hawks pushing for a wider war? I just want to say a couple of things about this, Joy. Uh, the first thing that I think we don't repeat enough is, in addition to just the extraordinary costs that we've already talked about, nothing has emboldened Iran and strengthened its position in the Middle East more than the U.S.-led war in Iraq. That removed a big adversary of Iran's. It kind of opened the door to a Shiite majority government that they had a lot of influence in. All these militias are an outgrowth of the policies that a lot of those same people, Dick Cheney, John Bolton, all of them, supported. Uh, the In the Obama administration, we made a mistake, I believe, uh, in terms of supporting a Saudi-led war in Yemen against the Houthis, who were backed by the Iranians. The Houthis in Iran were not weakened by that war. They, frankly, emerged more resilient on the other end. And, and so I think the idea that you're going to defeat the Houthis when they, they live in Yemen, uh, that's, that's where they're from. Uh, they're not going anywhere. They want to be at the vanguard of opposing the United States and Israel in the region at a time of this war in Gaza. And so the only pathway to de-escalation, it's just, we may not like it. I certainly don't think these groups, I think they're, they do terrible things. I think they engage in terrorism. I think they engage in violence. But the reality is they're doing this post-October 7th because they want to be a part of what they see as this war where they're attracting uh, popularity and attention from around the world. And so the only yeah. pathway to security is to de-escalate the broader conflict. And so a pathway to a ceasefire in Gaza is both about protecting the people of Gaza who are suffering a horrendous catastrophe. I also believe, frankly, in the, it's in the long term of interest of Israel uh, to not be trying to flatten Gaza and not be isolating itself to this degree internationally. But I think just regionally, when you see this urgency of the U.S. trying to work with Egypt and Qatar and Israel, it's because they know that the only way you're going to get the hostages home to Israel is if you stop the fighting. You don't rescue a hostage right. with a 2,000-pound bomb. And the only way in which you're going to calm tensions in the region is not by having more war and having more enemies. We've seen where that leads in the Middle East. That leads to more violence. Uh, there has to be a diplomatic process. And I think it's good that you see this urgency because people in the region know this is a recipe for more disaster. Yeah, indeed. The Houthis are named and after a man. <laughs> Houthi is the last name. It's not a regional group. It's not a, an ethnic group. They're, they're from Yemen. Uh, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. I interrupted you, Naira. No, Joy, I, I was, I was going to piggyback of what you and Ben have been saying. And there, who else in the region knows what's at stake here? It's the people in Israel who they have all themselves as adults had to volunteer in the army. They know that their president right now is not prioritizing getting those hostages back. The last last thing that they want is to see an escalation with Iran on top of and opening up another front of war for Britain is right now the very fragile state of Israel. So it, it does not help the United States allies. It does not help the United States project of promoting democracy um, throughout the Middle East to be escalating this war directly into Iran, especially when the United States has the opportunity to uh, attack targets elsewhere and send strong messages in other ways. Yeah. Uh, President Eisenhower said it very well. The military industrial complex creates a constant, continual incentive for war. And I think President Obama was right. Uh, we have to wean people off of this idea, the politicians off of this idea that war is the answer to everything. There is an industrial, military industrial component to it. There's just a armchair hawk component to it. It's never a good thing. Doesn't solve anything. Ben Rhodes, Naira Hawk, thank you both. Up next on The Readout, E. Jean Carroll is speaking out about her legal defeat of Donald Trump, who now owes her a whopping $83 million. What are the chances she will actually collect from the man who notoriously has, throughout his life, skipped out on his bills? And what can be done to make sure he pays up? The Readout continues after this.
We got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Expectations matter. What do you expect from an SUV? Versatility? A range of sizes built to fit your life? A range of exteriors that all invite stairs? Or being able to take control of more than just the wheel? Expectations matter, but exceeding them matters more. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel. I had been prepared for the worst force you know, on the earth today, the most powerful, the most, the most effective, the most money, the richest, the most, you know, you know. And there he is. He's nothing. Why? It's just the people around him who give him the power. Mm-hmm. It's the emperor without clothes. I'd like to give the money to something Donald Trump hates, perhaps a fund for the women who have been sexually assaulted by Donald Trump. Today, we are hearing from writer E. Jean Carroll for the first time since the jury ordered Donald Trump to pay her north of $83 million in defamation damages. That's on top of the $5 million a separate New York jury ordered Trump to pay Carroll last year in her first civil defamation trial against the man who was found liable for sexually assaulting her in a department store dressing room in the 1990s. Perhaps this jury found the magic number that will shut Trump up. Because unlike the first trial, which did not stop Trump's attacks on E. Jean Carroll, he's been relatively quiet on social media and the campaign trail about this second one. Over the weekend, Trump shared just two articles about Carroll and the trial. But given that she's breaking her silence and knowing Trump's track record, how long before those attacks start up again? Joining me now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney, professor at the University of Alabama School of Law and an MSNBC legal analyst and friend of the show. Let's talk about that number. Is that the idea of punitive damages? Is it to make the person stop? And if he stops, does that speak to the success of the damage amount? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Joy, because punitive damages are intended to both punish a defendant for what they've done when it's been malicious and intentional, and also to try to compel them to stop as best as possibly can be done. This number here seems to have been effective, but whether it keeps Trump from continuing to defame uh, E. Jean Carroll, it at least punishes him. Yeah. Amen to that. Let's talk about how E. Jean Carroll could actually collect the money so she can start this fund for Trump's, uh, what is it, 23, 24, 25, 26 other named victims that we know of. Here are the options. New York Times reports on how uh, E. Jean Carroll could collect her full $83.3 million. Number one, Mr. Trump could pay the $83.3 million to the court, which will hold the money while he's appealing. This is a, He has to file a bond because he wants to appeal. So he could pay it um, so they could hold it. Or Trump could try to secure a bond, which will save him from having to pay the full amount up front. A bond might require him to pay a deposit and offer collateral and would come with interest and fees. It would also require Mr. Trump to find a financial institution willing to lend him a large sum of money at a time when he is in significant legal jeopardy. 
Why does there need to be a bond if he's appealing? And how does the court go about collecting the $83.3 million to hold it? Yeah, the basic idea here is that the burden is on the party who loses in the trial court. If they want to take an appeal, they've got to pay into the court fund either a bond or the full amount plus some uh, plus up for interest in order to be able to take an appeal. You sort of have to pay to play um, to misuse a phrase that's used in other contexts. So Trump has that decision. If he wants to appeal, he can either obtain a traditional bond or pay in. Joy, it's really interesting to note that when he lost the first judgment against E. Jean Carroll, he did not get an appeal bond. He paid the full amount of that judgment plus an add-on to represent future interest, and then he took his appeal. No word on whether that was because he was unable to get a traditional bond or whether he thought this mm. was uh, a better uh, sort of an approach for him. Maybe he had an extra $6 million kicking around <laughs> that he didn't mind getting rid of. But either way, that gets a little bit more difficult when you're looking at $83.3 million. Yeah. And I don't know if his friends on Deutsche Bank are still there to lend him some more money. Um, let's talk about this, because Donald Trump, this may not this may just be the beginning of the money he owes or would have to put up bonds for if he appeals. There's that three hundred and seventy million dollar ask that Letitia James, the New York AG, is making. That's how much she is seeking. And that could go north of that as well. Let's say he lose he, he ends up being li- being due another three hundred and seventy million. And then he has to pay the five million and the eighty three point three. Is there an order that the those who have won judgments against him go in who takes precedence to get paid first yeah that it's a great question it'll have to do with the time that judgments were entered and also you know if we were to get into a bankrupt a bankruptcy situation which doesn't seem where trump is right now but then there's a certain prioritization for creditors I think right now, E. Jean Carroll is in line behind people who have judgments ahead of her or debts ahead of her and in front, per- perhaps, of Letitia James's claim. Well, since I have a little bit more time with you, what do you make of how long it's taking for the D.C. Circuit to come back with uh, their decision on Donald Trump's absolute immunity claim? Should we be worried that it's taking so long? So, you know, it's tough to know. The clock is obviously ticking. Everyone had hoped to see a quick decision. But you've got three judges. One of the priorities that judges often set when they're making an appellate decision is reaching some sort of unanimity, not just about the decision, but about the analysis that leads them to that decision. So it's possible that the judges are trying to work out some differences and come to agreement. That, of course, can make an opinion stronger, make um, something stronger when it goes up on appeal either for en banc consideration or to the Supreme Court. So it may be a matter of an extra few days to get what's ultimately a judgment that's more readily affirmable on appeal. Uh, I always learn so much from you, Joyce Vance. It's like taking my own little law school course whenever you're on. You're so helpful. Thank you so much. Always appreciate you being here. Thank you. And be sure to tune in tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern when E. Jean Carroll herself joins the great Rachel Maddow. Uh, You will not want to miss that conversation. I'll certainly be there listening with you. Up next on The Readout, there's nothing slimier than members of Congress taking credit for stuff they voted against. But for this Republican-led do-nothing Congress, that's pretty much their only option. We'll be right back.
we got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. At Audi, expectations matter. It's why what's standard on every Audi SUV are features that exceed yours. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel. If you've been paying attention to politics, it's become pretty clear that the Republican Party isn't actually good at delivering for the American people. The best they could do when they had control of the House, the Senate and the White House was a giant, enormous tax cut for corporations and the mega rich. Right now, Republicans are so bad at legislating. Even they're insulting how unproductive their Congress is. It's so bad. The current Congress, the 118th, has been ranked as one of the most unproductive Congresses in decades. I mean, Republicans are so bad at their jobs that they're now taking credit for things that Democrats passed and that they voted against. In an interview on CBS News Miami with veteran journalist Jim DeFeedy, Miami Congresswoman Maria Elvira Salazar got a case of amnesia when asked about her votes against legislation, including the Chips and Science Act and the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, spending she publicly took credit for in her community. Last month, you were at FIU and you presented a check for $650,000 to help small businesses at FIU. But you voted against the bill that gave the money that you then signed a check for and handed and had a photo op, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023. Right. You voted against that bill. I, I right now you have to give me more details, but I do know that every time I have an opportunity to bring money to my constituents, I do so. I well, just did four hundred thousand dollars. But look, well, let's you, go. but you voted against you voted against the Chips and Science Act, right? Listen, I right now I need to I need to ask my staff. You voted against the infrastructure bill and you talk about all the money that comes back to the airport. So at the same time that you're taking credit for the money that you bring back to the district in Washington, you're voting against these projects on party line votes. Listen, I that was, I think, last cycle. I cannot really remember right now. <laughs> if see what had happened was was a person. Representative Salazar isn't the only one. This is now a thing for Republicans. For example, Minnesota Congressman Pete Stauber has been out there claiming bragging rights for bills he didn't actually vote for. Last week, President Biden announced nearly $5 billion in federal money for a bridge connecting Minnesota and Wisconsin and dozens of other infrastructure projects nationwide, funding which was made possible by the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Now, if you listen to Congressman Stauber, you would think this funding was only possible because of him. Securing the money to help replace this bridge has long been a priority of mine, and I am proud to have helped deliver over $1 billion in federal funds to the Northland. Fact check. Actually, the funding happened in spite of him. Stauber voted against the infrastructure bill. And he defended that decision at the time by saying, and I quote, I will not be complicit in 
paving a destructive and irreversible path towards socialism. The massive spending package is not about real infrastructure. And yet, there he is, standing in front of a bridge that got millions of dollars for a makeover. How's that socialism tasting these days, buddy? If you actually take a beat and look at the Republican Party as a whole, you will notice that they are very good at complaining. They're really bad at legislating. Take, for example, immigration. That's all they talk about anymore. They repeat over and over and over again their white nationalist talking points about a massive invasion of illegal aliens who are coming to destroy real America. It's so bad. They literally seem to be spoiling for a second civil war and are caterwauling on right-wing media about facing down federal troops over the border. According to Republicans, this is an emergency that needs an immediate solution or America as we know it will be over. So why not fix it? I mean, these people are actually in government and in a position to fix it, right? Well, fixing things isn't actually the point for them. You know how I know? Because the Republican Party just censured someone who dared to work with Democrats to find a solution to the border. Sounds unhinged, right? Well, it is. After the break, I'll tell you which MAGA Republican got that treatment. Congressional Republicans love to latch on to President Biden and Democrats' successful policies and take credit for things they didn't do, while tying themselves into pretzels to do nothing for the American people for the sake of Donald Trump. Case in point, fixing what they say is a crisis at the border. With congressional negotiators continuing work on a bipartisan deal to tie border policy changes to funding for Ukraine. Over the weekend, President Biden said he's ready to take action if Congress is serious about solving the border issue. If that bill were the law today, I'd shut down the border right now and fix it quickly. And Congress needs to get it done. Starting another fucking war. <laughs> Still trying to kill the deal. He bragged about blocking progress and said, please, please blame him if it fails. Meanwhile, the main Republican negotiator on border security, Oklahoma Senator James Lankford, is defending the proposed deal and called out fellow Republicans who oppose it. It is interesting. Republicans four months ago would not give funding for Ukraine, for Israel and for our southern border because we demanded changes in policy. So we actually locked arms together and said, we're not going to give you money for this. We want a change in law. And now it's interesting. A few months later, when we're finally getting to the end, they're like, oh, just kidding. I actually don't want a change in law because it's a presidential election year. So what was Senator Langford got? What has Senator Langford gotten for his efforts to solve what his party insists is a major, major crisis? The Oklahoma Republican Party has voted to condemn and censure Senator Langford for working with Democrats. Because, of course, joining me now is Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett of Texas and Stuart Stevens, political strategist and senior advisor to the Lincoln Project. Thank you both for being here. I am going to start with you, Congresswoman Crockett, because it is your state uh, that is home to the governor who has essentially dared the federal government to come down and enforce federal border policy. So it is portrayed, I just want you to confirm, as a an absolute urgent crisis, no? Oh, absolutely. It's an invasion, Joy. It's an invasion, honey. So, yeah, we know that this is what they're saying out loud, but this is because people such as Chip Roy have made it very clear that they have nothing to campaign on. And so, therefore, they have found that this is their chance. They're able to use Democratic governors and Democratic senators, I'm sorry, um, mayors, to say, listen, everybody agrees, even the Democrats, right? And so, here it is. We could have a solution, but we know that solutions is not what they want. All they want is rhetoric so that they can campaign. And, you know, Stuart, now you have Donald Trump saying, hey, blame me. Like he wants 
the blame. He wants the credit, I guess you could call it, on the Republican side for killing a deal. And Republicans have responded in Oklahoma by literally censuring Senator Langford for doing nothing other than working on this bill. Your thoughts? Yeah, this is not a serious party. And, you know, what gets lost in all of this is sort of the scope of the human tragedy that's involved both on the border and in Ukraine. I mean, it's not an exaggeration that people are dying every hour because of this. It's not some theoretical game. It's not like debating the law of the sea treaty that's going to go into effect 20 years from now. This is like real stuff. And this is actually why you have a government and you hire, you <laughs> elect people to make tough decisions. And, you know, we have this massive budget. We have the largest military combined to the next nine largest military budgets in the world. We can afford to do both. This is a false charge um, and a false choice. And it's just really extraordinary for a lot of us who worked in the Republican Party to see what is de facto aiding and abetting Vladimir Putin uh, winning the largest uh, land war in Europe since World War II. And Congresswoman Crockett, so the Republicans are saying, they're saying that what they want is what they passed, H.R. 2, which would significantly restrict asylum. It would do remain in Mexico and some other things. It would defund the NGOs providing services to migrants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The Senate bill, which is different from that, do you get the sense that, let's just say the Senate, for whatever reason, decided to do H.R. 2 and send that right back to the House. Would Republicans vote for that? No, absolutely not, because their leader has told them that they can't do it. You know, I thought that we lived in a country in which we had a democracy and we had three co-equal branches of government. But right now, it is clear that we have a leader over the legislative Republicans, and that leader isn't even an elected official. This is what we're dealing with. So when people want to blame Democrats when they head to the polls in November— the Republicans are saying that's exactly what we want you to do. But the reality is that Democrats have been the ones that have always been the adults in the room, especially this session, that have said, listen, we understand what it means to govern. That means that we don't necessarily get everything that we want, but we want to make sure that we are making some sort of progress and we're bettering the lives of American people. So we are always willing and ready to work. They are not. This is why this is the most unproductive Congress that we have had in modern day history. And I do want to pick up on a point that I don't think that we're emphasizing enough. This is the pro-Putin caucus. Full stop. That's what they are. And the fact that we have people that are agreeing to and allowing a dictator like Putin to do the things that are absolutely um, in opposition to democracy tells you how far we have come in this country. And it also tells you of the threat that we have in this country as it relates to democracy, because they are failing to respect the very principles that this country allegedly was built upon. You know, and Stuart, part of what they are now saying they are going to do, their proactive sort of action is to try to impeach uh, Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. They're going to do that. Um, but it, it seems that the Republican parties are sort of trapped between the two things they want most, right? Whatever Donald Trump wants, which is for Putin to win, and a border, the border to, I guess, I don't know, I, you know, to, to, to be the spark of a civil war. It's not clear if there's a policy they want other than Putin winning and, I guess, a civil war. Yeah, you know, we, we shouldn't forget that this was Donald Trump's main campaign issue when he ran for president the first time and was elected, and he failed. He failed on the border more than any president in history. You know, the wall that Mexico was going to build, all of this, that's the reason this is a Biden problem now, because yeah. Trump failed to address this problem. 
And, you know, what really is, is just so striking to, to a lot of us who worked in the Republican Party, the essence of living in a totalitarian society is you can't say what you know is true and what you believe because it's unacceptable. And if you held a gun to the head and a lie detector test to most of these Republicans, they would vote for Ukraine overwhelmingly and they would vote to do something about the border. But they're caught in this Orwellian world in which they can't tell the truth. They can't really be the people that they'd like to be. And instead, this is who they are. And it's a complete moral collapse of what it means to be an American. And Congresswoman, I mean, I think that's it's hard to argue with that, Congresswoman. Have any of your colleagues on the other side explained why they didn't solve the border when they had what they claim was the greatest president in history and they had all three branches of government under their control? Absolutely not. But, you know, when it comes to policy, you're not getting very much policy out of the Republicans nowadays. And unfortunately, we end up in this cycle where it's a matter of, you know what, we will trust the Republicans because we think they're better on the um, on the economy. We think they're better on border security. We think they're better on all these things. And then everything goes bad. And then they say, well, you know what, let's just go <laughs> ahead and see what the Democrats can do, because we can't do any worse. And then the Democrats come in and they clean it up. Right now, we have an economy that is thriving. I know that not everyone feels it at this exact moment, but by every metric, the economy is doing well. We are hitting record highs as it relates to the stock market. And so with that being said, trust Democrats. We will get it done for you. Yeah. And uh, Republicans will complain about it a lot, though. Congresswoman Jasmine Crocker, they're good at that. Stuart Stevens, thank you very much. Still ahead. The right tries to turn air travel, air travel into a new DEI battleground. And I'm fighting back with facts. Stay with us. The right's obsession with affirmative action, which became their obsession with critical race theory, which devolved into their obsession with DEI. I mean, can't we just call it a negative obsession with black people already? is soaring to new heights, or more accurately, sinking to new lows. And the latest target in their war against horrible, torturous diversity is airlines. After a series of safety incidents on commercial planes, including the Alaska Airlines flight, where a door plug blew off a Boeing jet midair, the conservative media ecosystem has decided the sole cause of it all is the fact that airlines are hiring black people. You have Republican Congressman Matt Gates and Andy Biggs, along with Elon Musk and executive fail son Donald Trump Jr., all posting without evidence about how DEI is destroying airlines and making flying less safe. Right-wing commentator Candace Owens, who never misses a grift, I mean an opportunity to me too, any attack on fellow black people, chimed in to add that she wouldn't trust a woman to fly a plane either. I would be terrified if I got onto a plane and I saw a woman uh, flying the plane, and I know that we have the United CEO saying that he just wants to fulfill a quota. He just wants there to be more women and wants there to be more black people. And he's not concerned at first with qualifications. But perhaps the most egregious example came from Turning Point USA founder and junior college dropout Charlie Kirk, who didn't even try to hide the racism. I'm sorry, if I see a black pilot, I'm going to be like, boy, I hope he's qualified. Well, someone who actually knows a thing or two about flying planes, former Navy intelligence officer Naveed Jamali, clapped back at Charlie in a Threads post, writing, This is Lieutenant Commander Kellen Smith. He was awarded the Air Medal by the president for his actions after the, after the arresting cable snapped, sending his E-2C off the deck of the Ike. 
It was his superior airmanship that saved not only his aircraft, but the lives of his crew. He also happens to be black. Joining me now is Naveed Jamali, former FBI double agent and host of Newsweek's Unconventional. Naveed, I know you and I texted about this after Charlie Kirk made his uh, comment, which we will not characterize as uh, his other than his comment. Your thoughts on this idea that the problem with airlines is the blacks? <laughs> it's so absurd. <laughs> I, mean, I don't even know how to even directly answer that other than to say, look, there's an insidious approach to this. I'm wearing this little pin on my jacket here. To me, it signifies being an intelligence officer. It's something I earned. Being a person of color, Joy, I'm, I'm a man of a certain age where I spent a lot of time being the only person that looks like me in those rooms. What Kirk and Candace Owens are doing is essentially saying that credentials, that people of color, women of color, who have earned these credentials, it doesn't matter because we need to judge them by the color of their skin. And this is exactly what uh, Martin Luther King, you know, spoke out against. So it is so absurd to say that someone is not qualified to fly a plane. Uh, Kellen, Lieutenant Commander Kellen Smith is just one of the many examples that we can bring out to show that it's absolutely not true, of course. And we shouldn't have to defend the idea that black people can be pilots. I mean, first of all, like what, a third of pilots are former military people. What are they saying? The military is bringing in people who don't know what they're doing. And we actually asked my producers, just go back through and see how many of the airline crashes in the 21st century involve pilots who are black. The answer is none. <laughs> Zero. All of the um, known air catastrophes um, that have happened uh, in this century, the pilot happened to be white. So, but that doesn't mean that when you see a white pilot or if you see a sure. pilot looks like Charlie Kirk, you should all of a sudden be afraid. But that happens to be the statistical reality. You're absolutely right. Look, Joe, I had the chance to fly in a B-2 stealth bomber. The young airman, senior airman Holt, the person who was in charge of literally making sure that I was safe, putting my helmet on, fitting it, my oxygen mask and my parachute, she was a woman of color, and I trusted her with nothing short of my life. It's not just the pilots. There's a whole crew that goes into flying a plane to sort of sit back and say that those people are not qualified or, in fact, are qualified because of their color, their skin, their gender, or who they pray to is patently absurd. Uh, it's not what the way the military does things. You, you're trained, you're qualified, and that's it. You're qualified to do that job. Kirk, who never finished college, as far as I know— um, you know, for him junior to comment college. on, yeah, junior college to comment nothing on, junior college nothing great. wrong with it at all. Mm -hmm. But but for him to co comment on qualification and let's call it what it is, it's racism to say that someone we should judge the ability for someone to carry out a job or a task based on their color, of their skin is just sheer racism. And let's just show the Tuskegee Airmen. I mean, those were black of pilots course. who were heroic during World War II. There are plenty of incredible heroic black pilots and those who are, you know, work for NASA, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, for me, given the fact that such a small percentage of pilots, what is it, three or four percent are African-American? Let's see. I'm going through here. Three point four percent of U.S. airline pilots are black. Two point two percent are of Asian descent. A paltry zero point five percent are Hispanic or Latino. Women make up just four point six percent. When I see a black pilot or an Asian-American pilot or a Latino pilot or or a, a woman pilot, I just think, wow, that person has overcome tremendous odds to do a really difficult job. And I'm actually excited and proud to see them. The fact that Charlie Kirk says he's afraid, when again, statistically, there's been none of the people that I just mentioned. Black pilots haven't caused any airline crashes is extraordinary. 
No, look, you talk about Alaska Airlines. Let's just also talk about women here. The the pilot who landed that plane was a was a woman. You know, it's absurd. Yes. It's absurd, absurd, absurd. We're 2024. Joy, I, I, you and I have had a lot of these moments where we're not surprised, but we're often shocked. This is, you know, this is it. I mean, this is racism. That's all it is. There's no logical way to defend it. Uh, of course, qualifications and ability and skill and your learned knowledge of how to perform a job have nothing to do with the color of your skin. I mean, come on. Yeah. It should go without saying, uh, and that's supposed to be the idea in America, but obviously for these guys, there's a political desire to get a certain type of person all exorcised about things. Naveed Jamali, thank you very much. Uh, before we go, I just want to apologize very quickly. Uh, I was chatting during a clip that was playing, um, and, you know, we try to keep this show very PG-13, so I just want to apologize to anyone who is listening to my behind-the-scenes chatter. Uh, deeply, deeply apologize for that, because you know it's PG-13 up around here. So thank you to you all for watching The Great Doubt. got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.